conversation from Luke 16. Yeah, there you go. Once again, great job, family ministry. Well, it's good to see you all here once again today. The, the last time I preached, I was in a room by myself talking to a camera of a computer screen. The good news is the computer got saved, so uh, you know, that's a good thing. Um, but no, it's good to be in the flesh once again. And it'll be interesting to see what we remember about the early days of the pandemic, apart from the virus itself. Will we remember empty shelves in the store aisles when we were trying to get for ourselves things that we're used to getting to, but suddenly we find they're a little bit hard to come by? Or will we remember that we had to grow our hair a little bit longer as our barbers and hairstylists weren't able to work? And maybe you'll remember the experimental self-haircut that you tried on yourself. Just remember that whenever you hear the, the phrase, I think I'll give myself bangs, just be ready for, just be ready. Um, or maybe we'll remember different things, the, the highlights of things that we watched on television. One of, certainly one of the highlights during this time was a 10-part ESPN documentary series called The Last Dance. And of course, there were no live sports, there was a bit of a sports vacuum, and this filled the void for millions of people. The Last Dance was about the dominance of the Chicago Bulls in the 1990s. They won six NBA championships in eight years. And of course, the story revolved around Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was considered by many to be the best basketball player of all time. And if this, of course, is going on during much of my adolescence from you know, 1991 to 1998. For me, that was ages nine to 16. And so many young men my age wanted to do as the Gatorade commercial said, and be like Mike. We wanted to be like Mike. And you know, I got close to Mike in terms of height and leaping ability. Okay, I'm just kidding about that second one there. Um, but there is a sense that all of us are like Mike. Of course, the obvious one is that we are all made in the image of God, and that's very important. But it reminds me of other ways that we are like Mike as well, as I'm reminded of an article written about seven years ago when Michael Jordan was turning 50 years old. A sports writer named Wright Thompson wrote an article called, Michael Jordan Has Not Left the Building. And so he's basically collecting some of his thoughts since retiring. And in it, Jordan says, my ego is so big now that I expect certain things. Thompson observes, Jordan is used to being the most important person in every room he enters and going a step further in the lives of everyone he meets. People cater to his every whim. His self-esteem has always been, as he says, tied directly to the game. Without it, he feels adrift. Who am I? What am I doing? For the past 10 years since retiring for a third time, he has been running, moving as fast as he could, creating distractions and distance. How can I enjoy the next 20 years without so much of this consuming me, he asks. How can I find peace away from the game of basketball? Now, of course, my intent in sharing this is, 
not to cast any judgment or make any sort of assessment on the spiritual life of Michael Jordan. In fact, I think he, it makes him more relatable. I think he's just being honest. He is saying out loud things that we have all thought but have learned to keep to ourselves. For, in a, in, for each of us, there's been a moment in our life where we have put our value, the way that we understand ourselves, in something in this world. There is something in our lives that we have either lost or have never obtained to where we ask ourselves, how can I find peace away from this? And so I, I want us to kind of examine ourselves today. You know, what has been that thing for you? Is it, you know, wh where do you find your value? Is it, um, you know, having influence in your church community? Is it whether or not your children turn out right, at least according to your expectations? Is your value in whether or not your spouse is happy or even the idea of having a spouse at all? Is your value in being seen as the smartest person in every room that you enter? Is your value in your position, your performance, and your productivity at work? Is it in your physical appearance? Is your value in your salary, your net worth? Each of these things, of course, are connected to the five capitals that we talked about two weeks ago. Your spiritual capital, your relational capital, your intellectual, physical, and financial capital. All things that we are meant to steward, all things we are meant to invest, good things that God has given us, but that we at one time or another have made into ultimate things, things that we have centered our life on, things that we have made into our identity. So consider these questions that Michael Jordan asked. How can I enjoy the next 20 years without so much of this consuming me? How can I find peace away from what I've built my life on? And imagine that for yourself. And imagine that sense of emptiness, that craving that you haven't been able to satisfy, that desire that burns with this unquenchable fire. And imagine that going on for the next 20 years, or for the next 50 years, or for the next 1,000 years. C.S. Lewis talks about how if we're only going to live for 70 or 80 years, there's a lot of things in our life we really don't need to worry a whole lot about. But if we're going to live forever, these are things we need to take very seriously. He says that perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse. So gradually that the increase in 70 years will not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct technical term for what it would be. So my, my main idea that I want you to remember today is that what you make your identity sets you on a trajectory that becomes your destiny. So last week, 
we skipped ahead to Luke chapter 17, and it was appropriate for us to do so, to talk about Thanksgiving for our first week back together. But this week, we're jumping back to Luke 16, where so far we have read a parable of the dishonest manager who shrewdly invested for his future. And in the same way, we are to wisely invest for eternity. But Jesus goes on to say, no slave can serve two masters. You will love the one and hate the other. But you cannot serve both God and money. You cannot center your life on both God and money. And the Pharisees who loved money heard this and they scoffed at him. They said, oh yes, this is something he would say. This is exactly what you would expect a poor person to say. But Jesus continues by telling them this story, which we'll read in Luke 16, in verses 19 to 31. And I'm going to go ahead and invite Taylor to come up to read that for us. Taylor was one of uh, a, nearly a dozen uh, interns we had this past year in our form internship program. We wrapped that up in May, but we look forward to starting with a fresh batch of interns in the fall. So... Whenever you're ready. Luke 16, 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered in sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things. You received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us, when you, are, when you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Thank you. Two men, two lives, two destinies. The first man is described as a rich man dressed in purple. And of course, purple in those days was very expensive. It was, um, the dye came from the shell of a mollusk. But each shell only produced maybe a drop or two of dye. So it would take thousands of these shells to dye a decent size cloth. So it was very expensive. Jesus also says that he was dressed in fine linen. Here Jesus is saying this man spared no expenses for even his underwear. See, fine linen in those days, the best of it was made in Egypt. And um, an ounce of it would cost about an ounce of gold. And this man had a lavish lifestyle. In some translations, it says he feasted sumptuously. So to put him in our time, this man dressed in fine Italian suits, alligator skin shoes, Rolex watches. 
and he lived in the biggest house in Oakwood. And every night he went to the Pine Club where he ordered the 10-ounce filet mignon and a bottle of Cabernet. Now, each of those things in of themselves aren't inherently wrong, but the problem was in order to get to where he was going, he had to step over the sprawled-out body of a beggar. And here we have this contrast that couldn't be more stark between this rich man and this beggar who was laid at the rich man's gate, who was covered in sores, probably from malnutrition. And Jesus, he, he longed for, for the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. He longed for his leftovers, scraps suitable for dogs. And speaking of dogs, Jesus says, even the dogs licked his sores. Now, these dogs weren't the loving companions we have at our houses. These weren't Barnabas Breen's. And if you've ever been to the office during the week at Apex, you might have seen some shaggy creature who looks like he was made in the Jim Henson workshop. That's Barney. That's Mike's dog. And Barney's a lover. And if you're lucky, he'll sit on your lap. But these are not that kind of dogs. These are street dogs or possibly dogs that were guarding the rich man's gate. But they were the ones who treated Lazarus more humanely than anyone else in the story. And we're also surprised to hear that this man's name was Lazarus. And we're surprised for three reasons. The first reason that is that if this is a parable, and most commentators think that it is, it's the only time in a parable someone is given a proper name. Every other parable is just, there's a certain man who did this or that. We're also surprised because if we were expect to know anyone's name in this parable, it would be the rich man, the more prominent one in society. We typically know the names of more rich people than we do uh, than the poor people who tend to remain more anonymous. But we're also surprised to find his name is Lazarus because of the meaning of the name. The name Lazarus is a form of the Hebrew name Eleazar, which means God helps. Now imagine the Pharisees hearing this and rolling their eyes. A beggar covered with sores named God helps? Give me a break. But it seems that Lazarus embraced his identity in spite of the circumstances, as if to say, God is my help, because Lazarus was vindicated we see in due time, Lazarus died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. In other translations, Abraham's bosom. It seems that this is some sort of intermediate state before the resurrection of God's people at the end of the age. And it seems that there is this feasting language there because in those days, you would eat in a reclined position. You'd be you know, leaning on your left elbow, eating with your right hand. And in order to talk to the person behind you, you'd have to lean back like that, and your head would be close to their chest. That's what it was to be in the bosom of someone. We read about this in John chapter 13, when the disciple who Jesus loved was leaning against him as he found out who the betrayer would be. So here we have, I mean, this incredible change of circumstances. At one minute, you're begging at someone's gate. The next minute, you're feasting in a place of honor next to the father of all of Israel. And here, to borrow you know, the template of family ministry, we get a picture of God. That God 
has compassion for the poor. He cares for the marginalized, which would flew directly in the face of what the Pharisees believed. The Pharisees believed that wealth was a sign of God's blessing and God's favor, whereas poverty was a sign that you were cursed by God. Jesus turns that idea on its head. But the rich man, he was at least given the courtesy of a proper burial. But we see that he ends up in Hades. Now, we often translate Hades as hell, but it's not quite the final judgment. You know, after all, we read in Revelation that death in Hades would be cast into something called the lake of fire. But it seems that this is, once again, this intermediate state before the final judgment, which shares similar imagery to that of what we think of as hell. But either way you look at it, you don't want to go there. But the question is, why did the rich man end up in Hades? I think perhaps we get a clue, once again, by the fact that we know Lazarus' name, but the rich man is just the rich man. Some traditions have given this man the name Dives, which is the Latin for rich, but the text doesn't give him a name. And this points to the fact that everything in this man's life was pointing to the fact that he was rich, and that's the way he wanted it. He centered his life, his very identity, on being rich. But now that he is dead and in Hades, is he still a rich man? Because in his mind, he's a rich man or he's nothing. Did his wealth get him first-class seating in Hades? Did it get him a room with a view? No, he's either a rich man or he's nothing. And now that he's not rich, what is he? Nameless, identityless without anything to use to satisfy his soul. And we read in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And as we continue in Romans 1, we see one of the expressions of God's wrath is to give people over to what they've been longing for. God gave them up to their lusts. God gave them up to their dishonorable passions. God gave them up to a debased mind, a mind which over time loses its quality. Imagine that going on forever. This is dehumanization, if you will. God gave this man up to his profound addictions. And here he's going through this violent withdrawal without any hope of detoxing. And I think something like this has something to do with the imagery and language that is commonly associated with hell. Darkness pointing to isolation. Fire pointing to the disintegration of humanity. You know, most commentators and theologians throughout the centuries will tell you that these images are likely metaphorical or symbolic. But that is not meant to give us any relief or to help us sleep better at night. As the great American theologian Jonathan Edwards points out, whenever you have a metaphor for a spiritual thing, the metaphor is always pointing to something greater than itself. So we are at the limits of our language to describe how horrible it is to be in this place and how horrible it is to be relationally separated from the God in whose image you were made. And so here, with this story, Jesus is holding up smelling salts to the nostrils of the Pharisees. 
He's got these defibrillator paddles and he is shocking them awake from their circumstances. He is holding up a mirror to them saying, do you recognize yourself? Because this is your trajectory and if you don't repent, this is your destiny. And perhaps it's a mirror also for ourselves to examine our own lives. And we learn here something about the nature of sin because we often think of, of sin as you know, breaking God's rules. But I think it goes deeper than that. I think that sin is better described as building your identity on something other than God. You see, because you can create an identity out of not breaking the rules. You can place your identity on your morality. And what will happen over time is that you'll start to feel morally superior to others who aren't as good as keeping the rules. Do we know anything like that in America? But then over time, you're taken on this path of self-justification and self-importance to where you begin to believe that I've been good, so God owes me. And you'll see that anything good in my life is because I've been good. It's what, like what the Pharisees believed. We also see that identity is important because it is the primary target of the enemy. We see in the Gospels with the baptism of Jesus where the voice from the Father comes down and says, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. From there, Jesus goes to the desert to be tempted by the devil. And the first thing the devil says to him, if you are the son of God, turn these stones to bread. What does he go after? He goes after Jesus' identity. You know, you know, go ahead, go ahead, prove it. But an identity you have to go around proving isn't an identity that you're all that secure in, is it? And so if this is the tactic that the enemy would use for the Son of God, what do you think he's going to use for us? So what is it about money that makes it such an attractive and common thing that people put their identity in it? Well, money seems to give us access to three things that we are drawn to by default. First, Money gives us access to approval, the approval of others. This man dressed in purple. He dressed the way that he did in order to get people to think about him in certain ways. This is with our English phrase, dress to impress. Money also gave him access to fill his appetites. You know, every night he feasted sumptuously. So he would pursue these Temporary pleasures, but the pursuit of these pleasures was constant. And finally, money gives you access to, for you to be able to pursue your ambitions, you know, the, the goals, the things you want to accomplish. And one thing associated with ambition is power, control, the ability to tell others what to do. And they're not mentioned in the passage, but certainly this man had servants. I mean, a guy like this who feasts every night isn't going to cook for himself and get his purple clothes dirty. Are you kidding me? But this is further revealed when we notice his conversation with Abraham. He says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus down and have him dip his finger in water and have him come in and cool my tongue. 
Well, there's a few things to notice with this. First is, you know, there's no sign of remorse, no sign of repentance. He doesn't even say to Lazarus, hey, sorry for leaving you hanging as you were starving to death at my gate. But notice that he knew Lazarus' name, which means he can't plead ignorance. But notice what he asked. He basically, he essentially says, have Lazarus take a break from paradise so he can come and be my butler. He still sees Lazarus as beneath him. He is filled and blinded by self-importance. But then Abraham says to him, no, you've you've had your good thing. You've had your life of comfort and now you are in agony. Lazarus had his life of misery and now he is comforted. If we read this with, you know, there's, there's a way we can read this that's a bit simplistic to where, you know, we think, okay, so rich people are in trouble, but poor people get a free pass to paradise. Well, it's not quite that because as you can see, Abraham himself was a rich man and he was in paradise. So that kind of, that thinking doesn't necessarily work. So we should reject both a prosperity gospel as well as a poverty gospel. But I think what Abraham is saying here is like, look, you've had your good thing and you made it ultimate. You've made it the main thing. You've had your good thing and you built your life on it. And so now your life of comfort is the closest to heaven you'll ever get. And Lazarus's life of agony is the closest to hell he'll ever get. So the man discerns that he can't do anything more for himself. So he says, okay, well, I have five brothers. Send Lazarus from the dead to them to warn them so they don't have to come to this place. Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. The man says, no, 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 no. That's not good enough. I know what would make them repent. If you sent Lazarus from the dead, they would repent for sure. Notice the passive aggressive subtext here. He's saying, I know what would make my brothers repent because I know what would have made me repent. I didn't have enough information. It wasn't presented to me in a compelling enough way. It's not my fault that I'm here. Full of self-importance and blame shifting. But Abraham says, no. If if, If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets They won't listen even if someone rises from the dead. You see, because repentance is not merely an intellectual issue based on empirical evidence. The truth can be staring you right in the face, but as long as your heart is entangled with what you have built your life on, it's going to fall flat. You won't be affected at all. I mean, mean, tobacco companies for decades have printed on cigarette packs, smoking gives you lung cancer. Does that stop anybody? The truth staring you in the face, it it doesn't change you. And of course, this was proven to be true as, you know, in the Gospel of John, Jesus raises a man from the dead whose name happens to be Lazarus. And witnesses go and tell the Pharisees, and the Pharisees get with the chief priests. And do they come together and say to themselves, wow, these are incredible things that are happening among us. Maybe we should dig deeper into Moses and the prophets to see whether or not this guy actually is the Messiah. Is that how that conversation went? No, the conversation was, this guy's going to ruin everything. 
we need to kill him. And they didn't even deny that it happened. The truth is staring them right in the face, but they would rather hold on to their money, to their positions of power, to their nationalism. And when you think about Judas, how many people did Judas see raised from the dead? Did that have any effect on, what, on the trajectory he eventually took? Moses and the prophets are sufficient. We see that Jesus, um, after his resurrection, he's walking with two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. They don't recognize him at first. But he, it says he, he opens up to them, Moses and the prophets, that the Christ should suffer before entering his glory. And later on, he breaks bread with him. Then they recognize him, and then he disappears from their sight. And they say to one another, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened the scriptures to us. The scriptures were sufficient to ignite the flame in their hearts that they needed to know how to respond to God appropriately. So what do Moses and the prophets provide for us? Of course, they give strong indications that Jesus is the Messiah. John chapter five, Jesus says, you search the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have life. But I tell you, they testify about me. But Moses and the prophets also give us this long story of God and his people and, their ex- and his expectations of them. We have lots of commands. And here we have our window to the world, how we are to live. And you can think to yourself, there's lots of commands. But Jesus makes it simple for us. He says, all of Moses and the prophets can be summarized into two. The first is in Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. In Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you love God, you will love what God loves. If you love God, you will love those made in the image of God. And Jesus describes love for us. He says, imagine you are beaten and left for dead in the middle of the road. How would you want someone to treat you? Whatever they do, you go and do likewise. That is how you be a neighbor to someone. And the context of that story is a teacher of the law seeking to justify himself, saying, well, who is my neighbor? And the implications of what Jesus had to answer him are that your neighbor is not just the one who lives next to you. And your neighbor is not just the one who looks like you, or thinks like you, or votes like you. So perhaps the message that Jesus has for his people today is love your black neighbor as you love yourself. Love your white neighbor as you love yourself. Love your protesting neighbor as you love yourself. Love your not so vocal, not so sure what to say neighbor as yourself. Love your masked neighbor as you love yourself and love your unmasked neighbor as you love yourself. He's not saying you have to agree with everybody, that's impossible. And there may be times where it's appropriate to challenge, but before we challenge, we have to lead with loving invitation. We are called to love. But we have to keep in mind that 
these commandments are given in context of covenant, of God forming a relationship with his people, God making a people for himself and giving them an identity. They were to obey from their identity. And likewise, with God as our Father, we are children of God, we obey from our identity. Sometimes we get this backwards, where we try to obey for our identity, to earn an identity. So sometimes we can clothe the naked, feed the hungry, fight for social justice out of a sense of guilt or pride. And when that's the case, we're doing those things for ourselves to earn an identity. God says, do those things because you're my children. And when our identity is in Christ, we get those things that we were seeking when we were seeking other identities. We get God's approval. And we get it because as 2 Corinthians 8 said that Christ, though he was rich, he became poor. He became a beggar. The same word used of Lazarus is used of Jesus. Jesus became a beggar so that by his poverty, we could become rich. We know the story of the rich man and Lazarus, but imagine how our hearts would be moved if the story was there was a rich man with a beggar at his gate, and the rich man invited the beggar in, but in order to do so, the rich man traded places with the beggar and took the beggar's sores on himself. That's the story of Jesus. Jesus became what we are so that we could become what he is, so that God says of us what he said of Jesus my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. We have God's approval. Our identity in Christ also fulfills our appetites. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger again. Stop working for the bread that spoils. Jesus says, I am the bread that saves and satisfies, the bread that gives you meaning and purpose, the bread that gives you security, the bread that gives you peace. How can I find peace away from basketball? (laughs) How can I find peace away from money? There's peace in the bread. And in Christ, we are also given an ambition. The first ambition given to humanity was to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Jesus recommissions us to fruitfulness when he says, go and make disciples of the nations. Is that ambition good news for anybody here? In closing, the last words before he died of um, Martin Luther were, we are all beggars. Yes, this is true. And in a sense, apart from God, left to ourselves, we are beggars. Longing for the crumbs that fall from the table of the world. But with our identity in Christ, we can embrace the identity of Lazarus. That though things fall apart around me, God is my help. So I don't know what your takeaway is going to be today. I know my takeaway from being in this passage for a few weeks now is that the identity thing for me has to be settled first thing in the morning. As thoughts and distractions and lies come at me like a herd of buffalo seeking to knock me into instability. 
So whatever you have to do to settle that identity for yourself, you, you, you got to do it. You have to remember who you are and whose you are. And that's not always pretty. It's not always perfect. But there is grace because God is our help. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the picture we see of you as one who is gracious to those who are needy, as we are all needy. Lord, we are thankful for what you show us about yourself and the grace that you have for us. And God, do help us to be loving in our culture, in our country, and just being in the world, teach us what it looks like to be loving, not to earn an identity, but so fully immersed in our identity that we know what it is to be like you, to reflect what our Father is like. And may the church be the beacon for the whole world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.